This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer. And this episode, we are going into the deep to a place only a handful of people have ever been before. We are going to dive the Titanic. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is deep sea explorer Rory Golden. Rory's had a fascinating life. He started out in the music industry. He was actually the MD of Virgin Records Ireland, working with artists like Van Morrison, the Chemical Brothers, and even, as we'll see later in this story, his favorite, the legendary Monty Python. But after 25 years at the top of the charts, he gave up rock and roll to pursue his true passion at the bottom of the ocean. Rory is a diving James Bond. He's dived all over the world from archaeological wreck explorations to hardcore commercial ultra deep sea dives. He has his own dive shop now too. So if you find yourself in the Dublin area and fancy going to explore some of Ireland's underwater scenery, make sure to look him up. Flagship Scuba is the name and the website is flagship.ie. But the adventure he's going to take us on today is the dive of his life, the dive of anyone's life. He's going to take us to 12,600 feet below the waves, to a place so deep that light has never reached, to a place that could crush you in an instant with the intense pressure down there. The deep oceans are the last true frontier of our blue planet, and he's going to take us to its most famous and tragic site. And perhaps you can one day too. So I want to give a big shout out to Ocean Gate Expeditions who put me in touch with Rory. I've written about them in the past. They're a really cool, revolutionary company who specialize in taking ordinary people on extraordinary deep sea expeditions. You can actually join these expeditions as a mission specialist and assist with the science being done down there. While at the same time, having an absolutely crazy once in a lifetime adventure. It's not cheap, of course, but if you love the ocean, you love science, you love the idea of exploring a part of our world, the deep ocean, that is still largely unmapped and unknown, then it might also be the greatest adventure of your life. Check them out at OceanGateExpeditions.com and thanks again to them for connecting me with Rory and helping to make this episode happen. So we're just about to set off into the deep. But before we do, remember, if you're enjoying the show, please help support it by spreading the word. Leave a review, tell a friend, connect on social media, follow on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your shows. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. I post lots of background photos and more from each episode, as well as some of my own travel photography. And I'd also love it if you would sign up to the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com, where you can also book trips inspired by the show. I've set up an adventure travel agency to help you plan and book your next epic adventure. So let's make that dream trip come true. But don't worry about that right now, because I want you to imagine something. 
We live on a blue planet. 70% of the Earth's surface is water, but we know almost nothing about what's beneath it. We have seen further into the stars and galaxies above us than the blue universe below. In a shrinking world where those blank spaces on the map have all but been filled in, the oceans, the deep ocean, is one of the last great unexplored mysteries on the planet. And that is where we're going. But first, let's hear how Rory fell in love with the deep sea. Like many people of my generation, I grew up in the whole era of Jacques Cousteau. And Jacques Cousteau, with uh, Gagnon, his business partner, uh, developed the Aqualung, which made diving open to the masses. That whole area of on the underwater world, or the silent world, as, as he called it, was something that drew me to it. I just never forget the first time that I got into the water, sank in the shallow end, and started to breathe underwater. And I sat there, smiling my face off, thinking this is it. I've been through the whole circle of what diving is all about. Adrenaline rushed, you know, testosterone-driven young men who want to dive deep and dive long and wreck some plunder and all that. Now I love just chilling on a reef. I can hang on a reef in shallow water for, you know, an hour and just watching everything drift by and watch nature up close. Jacques Cousteau was a pioneer, not just for his diving and groundbreaking filmmaking, but also for marine conservation. He brought the eyes of the world for the first time, really, to the ocean deep and showed us its beauty, but also its fragility and vulnerability. He called it the silent world, and it is. When you put on that regulator and sink beneath the waves, the world above disappears. You float weightless and without sound, no talking, no human chatter, just breath, your breath, in, out. It's like meditation. And the first time that happens, the first time you actually breathe underwater and enter that alien world, that silent world where we're not supposed to be, is magic. And all of us, just like Rory, smile our face off and think, this is it. The sea, once it casts its spell, Cousteau said, holds one in its net of wonder forever. And it certainly did that with Rory. He started out diving reefs in local spots around the coast of Ireland. He became a commercial diver and worked on the rigs offshore. He dived wrecks all over the world, recovering artifacts once thought lost to sea. He even worked on a project that recovered the Saturn F1 rockets that powered the Apollo moon landing, which is an incredible piece of history that was thought to have been lost forever. But then, out of the blue, someone offered him the dive of his life, the chance he'd been dreaming about since he watched those Cousteau movies as a kid. He was offered the chance to dive the Titanic. It was the biggest tragedy of its time. The whole story of the Titanic just captures the imagination of the people because of all those dramas that were going on, all those mini-dramas, the multi-dramas, the whole story of a brand-new ship lost on its maiden voyage, the the lack of safety equipment on board, the extraordinary calm conditions on the night that that brought about the tragedy. And the fact that it was so deep, the fact that it was unknown what condition it was in. So many things happened as a result of it. So many things made the story. The Titanic set sail from Southampton, England on April 10th, 1912, stopping at Cherbourg, France in Queenstown, Ireland, now called Cove, before setting out across the Atlantic for New York. There were more than 2,200 people on board, 900 of which were crew. 
It was supposed to be unsinkable, the largest and safest ship ever built. But there were bad omens from the start. As she set sail, a fire actually broke out in one of the bunkers. They managed to put it out and they decided to keep going. This was a huge deal after all. More than 100,000 people attended the launch. Then she nearly collided with another ocean liner when she was trying to leave the docks. But they kept going and it wasn't until four days later that disaster struck. It was a perfectly calm, still, moonless night. The sort of night where there just seemed to be no danger at all. Then, at 11.30pm, a lookout saw an iceberg ahead and sounded the warning. The engines were reversed, the captain steered away, and the iceberg was actually narrowly missed, just scraping the side of the boat lightly. Or so they thought. Unbeknownst to them, beneath that harmless scraping, a jagged knife of ice had cut a 300-foot gash into the ship's hull beneath the waterline. Ocean water started spilling into the holes. The ship pitched downward, taking on more water rapidly. The captain decided to order the evacuation. There was just one problem. There weren't enough lifeboats. Of the more than 2,000 souls on board, there were only 16 lifeboats. Can you imagine that? Looking down into that dark ocean, that freezing water, watching the ship keel and sink, knowing that only a fraction of you would be saved. And perhaps the worst thing of all was that the chance you had of being saved depended on what class you were. 61% of first-class passengers survived, but only 24% of third-class passengers made it through the night. There was no doubt that there was a certain element of allocating spaces towards people from a certain social class. And there were all these alleged stories about doors being locked and people not being allowed up certain staircases. It's never been really proved as a fact. But there was no doubt that there was a certain view that a certain social class of people should get into the lifeboats first. The order of the day was women and children first. That was the way it was. And most people who survived were women. And any men who might have survived tended to get looked at as somebody who was a coward. I mean, case in point, Ismay, chairman of the, of the White Star Line, who survived. And he lived with that for years. But at the end of the day, there wasn't enough lifeboats to save anybody anyway. It was an awful death, too. The water temperature that night was below freezing, cold enough to make you gasp for breath, inhaling water as you struggle, your limbs slowly paralyzing in the cold, sinking you down into the dark. Husbands kissed wives goodbye, knowing it was the last time. Children were thrown onto lifeboats while their parents were forced to stay behind. But despite the absolute terror of those three hours the ship took to sink, there were incredible tales of heroism too. One of the, the two people that jump out at you are Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, the two Marconi radio operators. Jack Phillips didn't survive. He had only turned 25 a few days beforehand. They were employed by the Marconi radio company to pick and send messages that people paid for. And the transmitter had broken down and he broke company rules by spending hours getting that to work again. If Jack Phillips hadn't fixed that radio, the ship might have disappeared without anybody really knowing what happened to it for days later. He stayed with the ship in the radio room to the very end. I mean, there was water lapping around their feet and Harold Bride got off the ship, but Jack Phillips actually died. Now, there's two heroes. If those guys hadn't done what they had did, 
who knows if the Carpathia wouldn't have picked up the message. It was 60 miles away. That's one example. That's well known, but it doesn't get, I think, told enough. And by diving the Titanic and telling these stories, Rory is helping to honour those sacrifices, to give back life in some small way to the people who lost theirs that night in the cold, dark waters of the North Atlantic. But first he had to get there. He got the call. He was asked to join an archaeological expedition to recover artefacts from the site, flew to Halifax in Newfoundland, jumped on board the research vessel, the Caldiche, which had two mere submersibles. They sailed 375 miles into the North Atlantic and dropped anchor for six weeks of underwater exploration. But what's really incredible is that Rory was never meant to dive at all. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. My initial role with a colleague of mine, friend Sean, we were originally tasked with assisting in the recovery of artifacts as they came back from the bottom taking them out of the baskets, helping log them, washing them down. So many objects came up over that, I think it was 800 objects over that six-week period, including uh, very small things to very big things. A whole myriad of stuff came up. We went through many experiences and feelings about things because when you found personal belongings, it, it brought home the tragedy to you. Cases full of people's clothes neatly folded still that were still preserved because of the leather the tannin and the leather that kept uh, preserved. But then we found a bag, an alligator bag, and inside was a ticket allocated to a Marion Meanwell. And Marion Meanwell was a lady in her 60s going over to America to look after her daughter's children because I think her husband had died. Marion Meanwell's ticket had another ship's name struck out and Titanic handwritten beside it. She had been transferred from another White Star Line ship because there had been a coal strike in England. And the coal strike had stopped a lot of ships sailing. And to ensure Titanic sailed on time, they allocated the coal from other White Star Line ships to Titanic and transferred passengers onto the Titanic. She was never meant to sail the Titanic, and she didn't survive. She had a, a quirk of fate that twisted her the wrong way. So that story was tragic. Then there's the story of Margaret Rice from Ireland, who had emigrated to America, had 
married another Irish man. They had five boys. He died in an accident, a railway accident. She came back to Ireland to start a new life. Maybe she decided after a year she would go back to America. She died. All her children died. Only her body was found. I've actually been to her grave in Halifax. None of her five boys were found. So again, you have those stories. So all the stories about the extraordinary stories of the ordinary people on board the Titanic, because we all hear about the famous people, the Strausses, the Astors, you know, all the, the rich and famous who were travelling first class. But there were all the other people who were going across the Atlantic looking for new lives. Remember, most transatlantic trade back then were for people travelling looking for a new life to emigrate to places like the Far East, Middle East, Europe, the Nordic countries, France, of course, and Ireland. And they, you know, they were the ones that made up the bulk of the passengers on board. They are the stories that captures people's imagination. There's something really powerful about those stories because when you hear the numbers, 1,500 people died, about three quarters of the people on board, they're just numbers. But when you hear the stories, the individual stories of people like Marion and Margaret, it really brings it home. They were traveling to a new life in the new world. They were only a few hundred miles from the coast. They'd arrive the next day. And perhaps that's why it sticks in our imagination, why it's still the most famous shipwreck of all time. There have been countless other maritime disasters before and since, wrecks where thousands of people died. But the Titanic is different because at the moment of their greatest hope came their greatest tragedy. So it was strange for Rory sifting through those stories, those personal belongings that turned big numbers into individual, real people with lives and families and plans and dreams. It was hard, but he also found something that was kind of amazing too. A story that I always recall and retell, and it never gets tiring with age, was the incredible night that David Walker and Mike Harris, who was the expedition leader on that trip, on their dive, they all had picked up a small little bag about this size. And when it was brought up to the laboratory, I was down at the sub still clearing looking for small things and I was getting these amazing smells and Sean came down and says you need to come up to the laboratory I said John I have a smell here this this amazing this it's like perfume see if I come up to the laboratory and they had opened up this little pouch and inside were these files and the files were like bullet cases and inside them were glass files with stoppers and on them were labels Adolf Salfeld Manchester and in them was a liquid. Now, these had been down nearly 4,000 metres, two and a half miles, a pressure of 6,000 pounds a square inch. They should have been crushed by the pressure. We opened up these stoppers and all these wonderful smells of aromas and perfumes of flowers drifted all around the laboratory. We had been bringing up stuff that had all smells of decay and death and slime and mud and we had to wash everything up and then we opened up these bottles and all these wonderful smells brought us back to life. It was as if the ship had come back to life. Something had survived at that graveyard more than 12,000 feet deep at the bottom of the ocean. Something was alive, something beautiful. It was only a scent, ephemeral, something that wouldn't last. But for that moment, that one moment, the ship came back to life. He thought that was as close as he would come to the Titanic. But 
He had a little something up his sleeve that might just be his ticket down. There's a man called Michael Martin, and he created a walking trail in Cove, which is Titanic's last port of call, Queenstown as it was, called the Titanic Trail. Queenstown was the major emigration point for people leaving Ireland to go to America. So literally hundreds of thousands of people passed through Cove over, over centuries. And Michael decided to create this walking trail in Cove about the whole history of Cove. And when the expedition was announced and I was told I was going, I contacted Martin and I said, I think something should come from Ireland to go on the Titanic. And he went, leave it with me. And he organized a bronze plaque within less than 48 hours. And I brought it with me, brought it on the ship and I showed the Americans, I said, We've brought this from Ireland. We want this to go on the wreck. I didn't say, I want to put this on the wreck. And it was left at that. And that eventually became my ticket to dive in the Titanic because my carers, the, the expedition leader, said, Rory, you're, you're going to dive in two days' time. And I said, thank you, Mike. He said, this is amazing for me. And he said, you didn't think I was going to send an American down with a plaque from Ireland that you brought with you, Rory? And I said, I didn't really think you would. So... That plaque became my ticket. I think that's one of the coolest things about this story. He wasn't just going to see it, or even just to recover some of the historical artefacts, though that was the overarching mission. He was going on behalf of the people of Ireland, the Titanic's last port of call, to honour those who hadn't made it, to leave a plaque at their grave. He had his ticket, and what a ticket that was. Well, the first thing, if they know you're going to have a dive, and I learned this all afterwards, the Russians say to you a few days before, oh, you want to come and have a look inside the sub? Oh, thank you very much, yeah. And they bring you in, and uh, you're in there, and you're in this small environment, and they're watching you. They're watching your body language. Because you see the length of my arms here? That's about the width inside a three-person sub. So if anybody freaks out, there's nowhere to go. And freaking out, by the way, is the correct response to being trapped in a metal container the size of a portaloo with three other blokes 12,000 feet beneath the ocean in complete blackness with enough pressure outside to crush you into jelly. Not that you could escape anyway. If anything should go wrong, it is over. But thankfully, they are amazing pieces of kit. They can actually descend the height of Denali, the tallest mountain in North America, down into the depths of the sea. They have this robotic arm to collect samples. They have viewing ports. And James Cameron used one to film the movie Titanic, which is pretty cool too. The Mir subs are made and operated by a Russian crew. For Rory's dive, Victor was the pilot, and Ralph White, who was part of the crew that actually discovered the Titanic in 1985, was his dive partner. He was ready to go. So the process is you have a brief early in the morning, and uh, Anatoly, the chief scientist, gives a, a brief, and today we go, uh, today we go, we go to Titanic today. Oh, great, let's go to Titanic. And, um, this is, uh, today is Rory and Ralph. And um, Ralph was making his 30th dive to Titanic. I was making my first. And the night before, you don't eat because there are no facilities on board. So you, you go on a liquid dive. And you go through the process. You put on these Nomex suits, which are, you know, supposed to help you. If there's a flare-up, you know, you're going to die anyway. But it's supposed to give you a level of comfort. You climb up on board. 
You take off your shoes because they don't want contaminants getting inside an oxygen-enriched environment. And you go down, you get in, and it's roasting hot within minutes. Then they shut the hatch, or as I call it, the, the hatch of doom is sealed above you. And you're in there for about 10 or 15 minutes while all the pre-dive checks are going on. And then eventually you're lifted up and you're lowered over the side and dropped into the water. You watch the water coming in and then you ballast tanks are open and you start descending. And outside it's blue, blue, blue. And within, within 10 or 15 minutes, it's black. Terrifying. I mean, for me, absolutely terrifying. But also amazing. Because within that darkness are some of the greatest mysteries of our world. The deep oceans are the last frontier of exploration on this planet. We know more about the surface of Mars than we do our deepest oceans. 70% of our planet is ocean, yet only 5% of it has been explored. There are creatures down there, thousands of them, that no one knows even exist. And they are so different to us, living in a world of extreme pressure with no light, where light cannot even penetrate, that these creatures are as alien to us as any little green man that may or may not one day appear from the sky. You're looking out through this, the windows, and every now and then, Victor, the pilot, he would put on the lights, and you see all these amazing things out there. And then other times, you're seeing all these bioluminescent creatures of the deep flitting past the window and you're just you're, you're buzzing because everything is such a, a special experience and at about 1000 meters I decided I had to mark the occasion Ralph was dozing on his bunk and I actually got my CD player and stuck on my favourite song which is always looking the bright side of life you know the song Monty Python Life of Brian absolute classic I'm not going to burst anyone's eardrums by attempting to sing it and sadly they wanted to charge me a fortune to play it to you so you'll just have to hum it to yourself or check out the website I'll link to it Needless to say it is not only the most bizarre soundtrack to a deep war expedition you could possibly imagine it's also jinxing it a little bit don't you think I mean on the way down to the Titanic of all places look on the bright side of life but that is Rory and I love that about him he is just having a laugh and it worked because about an hour later they had reached their destination eventually then after about two hours 15 minutes Victor starts engaging with the surface again noises are going on lights go on outside and the only way we know how deep we're going is there's a digital depth gauge which is counting off the depths all the time and so we're at you know three and a half thousand three thousand six hundred and you can literally feel yourself slowing down and eventually we just touch down gently on the bottom of the ocean and then looked out through the porthole and all I could see was just nothing just a blank desolate terrain and after a few minutes Victor got his bearings checked we started to lift off and I'm glued to the port at this stage and then I started to see little things sticking up out of the seabed then I saw a starfish and that gave me a huge buzz because I realised there was life in what what was going to be the site of a, a great tragedy and then we saw more you know plants and things growing up and then eventually started to see wreckage bits of wreckage around the place and this was in the day when the mirrors just had a sonar pinging and the pinging got louder and louder and quicker and quicker and eventually the sub we saw this mud bank in front of us and he just bumped into it gently and all the silt came around the, the windows and the next thing he starts rising up and just there in front of me I just saw a steel wall 
and then I saw rivets and then more rivets and then the sub rises up and up and up and then I saw a porthole and then a railing and then we're looking down on the bow of the ship at the bridge area and that was that was the moment as the wall rises you get this tingling and then as you come up and the lights shine on the wreck there is the bow of the Titanic the, the hatches the bridge area and you realize you are now at the site of the world's most famous shipwreck and you have all these feelings of exhilaration at the same time sadness you join a very unique club of people who have actually physically been there it's one thing to see the titanic on a, a documentary or on a book but to actually be only a few feet away separated by a 12-inch port window and 6000 pounds of pressure that in an instant could kill you if anything went wrong just brings the whole thing home to you the fact that only a few hundred people have been to that depth of the ocean makes you realize how how unique and uh, privileged it is to be at that depth and then you think about a ship that was sailing on its first crossing of the atlantic that never made it across and then all those people who were also seeking a new start in life who never made it either so you you just go through all this amazing allness of what you're seeing in front of you and then it's down to business we were tasked with jobs to look for certain objects that were on a, a tick list and we recovered um a ship's base telegraph some lights fittings and at this stage it was 7 hours since we'd arrived in the bottom so we were 9 hours into the dive and where the hell did that time go and so victor made one last sweep around the bow area and went along the officer's deck and said let's have one last look and there about 20 meters away from the the ship's bridge area i saw a semicircular plate shape sticking out of a pile of debris and ralph was looking at the cameras i was looking through the windows and i said do you see what i see and he went yep because both of us realized what we were looking at when the robotic arm picked up this object it was the remains of the main ship's wheel and after we had done our couple of hours we went up to the the bridge area approached the bridge area where the tally motor is and uh, the plaque was lifted out and placed right beside that spot and it was left there from the people of people of Cove Queenstown and the people of Ireland to commemorate all those who lost their lives so that was quite a that was quite a significant moment and something special The plaque reads commemorating all those lost on RMS Titanic from the people of Cove, Queenstown and Ireland. May God give them eternal peace. He laid it for the people of Ireland, he laid it for all those who gave up their seats on the lifeboats. He laid it for Marion Meanwell and Margaret Rice, for Jack Phillips and Harold Bride. He did it for all those whose hopes and dreams were dashed on the brink of a new world. And despite all the findings in archaeology and history that expedition discovered, laying that plaque was perhaps the most important moment of all. But the surface was calling and soon it was time to leave and he was sad because it had been his life's dream and he wouldn't ever get the chance to see it again. Or so he thought. Because this year he's going back. Oceangate that deep sea adventure company I told you about has hired him to take the next round of underwater explorers to Titanic. 
and it's going to be quite a ride. There is no doubt in my mind that people who are going on this expedition will experience the same feelings that I had when I first saw the Titanic. You can't have those sensations looking at something from a distance on a, on a TV screen or a cinema. To actually be present is something that will live with that person for the rest of their lives. It certainly has done in my case. What they're going to see is something special and not just a shipwreck site. You're going to see the deep ocean. You're going to see new forms of life. You're going to see extraordinary things. Be prepared for an emotional roller coaster. Underwater exploration, the deep oceans is highly important. Without the exploitation, I use this merging of words in my, some of my presentations. Exploration, but not exploitation, because there's all this talk about deep ocean mining for natural nodules of manganese and all that type of thing. And that could just rip apart the whole ocean seabed and the whole ecosystems that are down there. It's a worrying time. It's an exciting time because more and more technology has been developed for undersea exploration. The oceans are important, not just to me, but to mankind. We depend on the oceans for many, many things, not just as a source of food, which is overexploited, but because it's a carbon sink and because it gives us oxygen. And the deep oceans are a part of the world that we don't know very, very much about. I mean, we look to outer space, which is important, but we also have inner space, which is our, our blue planet. And the deep oceans are an important part of humanity because that's where we came from. It's where we all come from. We live on a blue planet, on an ocean planet. The oceans are a part of us. Thousands of people have reached the summit of Mount Everest. Only a handful have ever gone to the depths of the sea. And so much of it remains unexplored. It is an alien world filled with fantastical creatures straight out of science fiction. James Cameron, the Titanic director and an accomplished underwater explorer himself, said of the deep ocean, you feel the power of nature's imagination, which is so much greater than ours. That's so true. This is the silent world, the world beneath the waves. And it calls to us for those who dare to leave the safety of land and descend into the darkness. It calls to us because it is a part of us, because it's where we came from, because we are explorers. Because as Cousteau said, the sea, once it casts its spell, holds one in its net of wonder forever. Thank you, Rory. Thank you for taking us on this incredible underwater expedition to the Titanic, the world's most famous shipwreck. Thank you also again to OceanGate for connecting me. Check them out at OceanGateExpeditions.com. And if this episode whet your appetite for some underwater wonder of your own, they are going to the Titanic this year. It's not cheap, of course. Going to the bottom of the ocean is unsurprisingly very expensive and probably not the sort of thing you should do on the cheap anyway but it might just be the adventure of your life. And finally, as always, a special thank you to you guys. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Thank you for helping our community grow. So keep your eyes out for that amazingness. It's everywhere. You just have to look. And that's important because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. 
dare to be truly alive.